Hello and welcome to the Do One Better podcast in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Alberto Oligi from London. Please click that subscribe button and follow us if you're not doing so already. And do leave us a rating and a review. It helps others to find the show as well. Today, it's an absolute pleasure to welcome back onto the show, Krish Kandia, who is founder and director of the Sanctuary Foundation. They do some remarkable work in support of refugees. And since we've just marked World Refugee Day on the 20th of June, this is a good time to have this conversation and talk about the situation with refugees here in the UK, the shifting attitudes that we have here in the UK, which are moving in a positive direction in relation to refugees, and also how the positive experience of so many British households in welcoming Ukrainian refugees to their homes, how that positive experience can be built upon to benefit refugees coming from other crisis hotspots uh, into the UK. So, refugees is the focus of today's conversation. And without further ado, Krish, a big heartfelt welcome back onto the Do One Better podcast today. Thank you, Alberto. I'm a fan of the podcast, and I love the fact you've got so many amazing people to come and speak with you. Well done. Ah, well, it's great to see you again. I know you've been, you're a repeat guest. You've been on the show three years ago, actually. It was back in 2020. Uh, today, it's uh, we're, we're right around World Refugee Day, uh, which is the 20th of June, 2023. So we're going live with this uh, right at that juncture. And um, I'd love to start by finding out a little bit about the work that you're doing with the uh, Sanctuary Foundation, which you founded uh, a year ago, back in 2022. What's the Sanctuary Foundation all about? So our vision at Sanctuary is to help support refugees here in the UK and around the world. But we've had a really interesting moment in British history. Uh, over the last two years, we've seen more people find refuge in the UK than almost at any time in our history, um, thanks to a number of government schemes. And it's an interesting time in government where they stand on immigration. There's been a whole you know, culture war issue around whether Britain is too full or, or, or not. But, but nevertheless, we've seen a large movement of people come to the UK from Hong Kong. Uh, over 150,000 people came, and many of them arrived in the middle of the lockdown. And that was tough. It's tough to move countries at the best of times. Uh, but coming in lockdown, coming when everyone's kind of not sure about the rules and how it works, coming when there'd been a spike in race-based hate crime against people of Southeast Asian appearance, uh, thanks to you know a certain US president describing it as Hong Kong fluey or Chinese virus. That was a really tough time, but we saw civil society really step up in the middle of the pandemic and offer just lovely hospitality and assistance to a new group of people coming to the UK. And uh, so we, we, we got really involved in that. And the government realized afresh that there was a way to work with civil society that we weren't... Um, oppositional to them we're not just going to criticize them that we were we found common ground in offering kindness and support to people that needed it so uh, we, we were loving that opportunity and then straight off the back of that we're told that there's going to be a gradual withdrawal of troops from Afghanistan and uh, you know is there anything that civil society could do and then suddenly I get a call on a Friday saying actually there's 3,000 Afghans arriving into hotels on the Saturday, is there anything that you guys could do? And uh, I work with all sorts of groups, uh, secular, religious, um, but the easiest group to deploy at pace were actually churches. 
And so they said, well, do you, do you know anywhere in these 30 locations? And I said, well, actually, the church is everywhere, you know, and, and, and Christians have a calling to do two things in life, to love God and love their neighbor. And Muslim Afghan refugees fit the bill. You know, they're our neighbors. We're happy to offer any support we can. And, you know, the church is in every single village, town and city. So we were able to find 30 churches that were able to offer that support that was needed at less than 24 hours notice. And, you know, sadly, the Afghans are still in hotels, um, despite lots of, you know, offers of help and, and rethinking the way that housing works. And then straight away, then there was the Ukraine um, war and this illegal invasion of Ukraine by Russia. And I was a little bit nervous. The UK was being a little bit slow compared to our European friends. Like you look at what Poland was doing and Romania was doing. I even went to visit Moldova, which was helping hundreds of thousands of Ukrainians. And, and I thought, how can we get the UK government to do something positive? They don't respond well to nagging or to negativity. You get the walls go up then. So we, we got people to pledge to host or sponsor a Ukrainian family before there was a scheme available. And it was just me and a couple of friends and a website and a web form. And suddenly 29,000 people said they wanted to help. And then we're able to go to the government and say, look, civil society wants to help you. You, you, you I know you want to do something to help Ukraine. Here's a way we could do it. And to their credit, thanks to brilliant leadership from Lord Harrington, who was the refugee minister, they invited civil society groups, NGO groups to come and help co-design the Homes for Ukraine program. And currently, over 175,000 Ukrainians have found hospitality in the UK, the vast majority staying with people like you and me, Alberto, you know, just ordinary folk have opened their homes. And that's that's historic. That's brilliant. And it, it's, you know, no matter what else is going on, the higher level of immigration policy, there is this little oasis of hospitality and kindness being offered to Ukrainians. And my prayer and hope is that it will be a model for how we help other refugee groups, not just Ukrainians. Wow, that's an amazing context. And uh, and it's not just work that you've done in an outward uh, way, as it were, with the system, but also you, you and your wife, Miriam, our foster parents, you, you've, uh, you know, you, you've welcomed many children to your to your home, including some refugee children as well, right? Yeah, it's been the privilege of our lives for the last seventeen years. We've been foster parents, and we've looked after all sorts of children of all sorts of backgrounds. But each one of them, we valued and treasured as as if they were our own flesh and blood. And since the Ukraine scheme opened, we've been able to look after two different Ukrainian families, one young single uh, woman who actually lost both of her parents before the war and was very isolated. And she's come to live with us. But there was another family, a mum, uh, a father and, and a, a one year old girl. And they, they just lit up our lives. It was just an honor to do that. And it, it's it's been a privilege. We've we've learned so much about the the wonders of Ukrainian culture. Uh, I didn't know that cabbage soup could taste as good as it does. That borscht <laughs> has become a regular part of our diet, and uh, it it will come up again when we talk about a takeaway. But this hospitality, personal hospitality, changes your mindset. It changes your experience of the world, and you know it's so enriching not just for the people that come to live with you but for you as a host it changes things and i've seen that happen to so many people thanks to the homes for ukraine program and fostering mm. so as we are here you know it's it's difficult to open the newspapers including now and just not have ukraine front and center uh and the catastrophe that's happening there 
as, as, as we're marking World Refugee Day, how would you characterize the state of affairs here in the UK, both in terms of the work that Sanctuary is doing, the opportunities to improve the state of affairs, um, and perhaps also some of the blind spots, the things that, that really require, uh, whether that's from government or policymakers or even those members of civil society or the average person on the street? Um, wh where are we? Great question. I mean, we're, we're in unprecedented times globally. The UNHCR reports that for the first time, it, it was last year, there are over 100 million displaced people in the world. And some of those people are internally displaced. So they've moved from one part of Ukraine to another or one part of Sudan to another. Others have crossed a border. And when you cross a border, that's when you become a refugee. And so this, this is a huge global challenge. And there are lots of factors to that. Some of it's global recessions, some of it's environmental crises that have changed things, some of it's poverty, uh, but some of it's war. And, you know, not just war in Ukraine, but the civil war in Sudan, for example. And, and so we've, we've got this unprecedented moment. Now, that's led to a narrative in the UK. Um, the, the current Home Secretary, Suella Braverman, has said there's 100 million people that want to come to the UK. And that's factually inaccurate, you know, because that 100 million figure includes people that are just moving from one part of their own country to another. And the vast majority of refugees stay in neighboring countries so you look after syria most ended up in lebanon uh, or in jordan uh, and i went on a, a visit recently to aswan in egypt and i was there to meet sudanese refugees who are fleeing that just atrocious civil conflict that's going on in their country and i probably met maybe 60 different sudanese people and, and some of them literally just stepped foot in egypt they'd got off a bus for the first time they'd stepped foot in egypt and no one no one wanted to come to the uk uh, they all wanted to stay in the region they they spoke arabic uh, they didn't have english they had skills that they could use locally they had family connections locally um, and it's really nice weather who wants to come to the uk when we're kind of crazy weather we've got so sometimes the uk i'm, I'm going to be a bit naughty here it's a bit like a middle-aged man that goes to a disco and assumes that everybody wants to dance with him. We have an overinflated ego. We are not the destination that everybody in the world wants to come to. Um, lots of our systems are not working, and people kind of know that. Ukrainians tell me that they're shocked at the state of our NHS. You know, the idea that it's going to take you three weeks to see a GP is mad. You know, they just can't get their heads around that. So there are problems here. Not everybody in the world wants to come here. Out of my entire visit to Egypt, I met one person that wanted to come here, and that was because his dad lives here. His dad uh, is part of the diaspora from Sudan. He's lived here for 20 years. He's been separated from his son. They tried numerous times to have family reunification. Now his son himself is a refugee in Cairo. He's living on three meals a week. And his dad's got a big house. He would love to welcome him home, but that, there is no safe and legal route for that son to be reunited with his father. And so, you know, that that that's the wider context. We, we've ended up with an ideological fear of immigration in our country and the recent net migration statistics and the response actually kind of highlights that. Everybody, every every um, British Prime Minister uh, over the last you know ten years at least has been saying we need to bring net migration down. We need to bring it down. I'm going, well, why? You know, if if you look at it, it 
immigration is actually really good for our country. Uh, you can see that economically, most immigrants uh, pay more in tax than, than they take out in um, benefits. Uh, most immigrants don't plan to retire here. Uh, most immigrants plan to live here, earn, earn here, send money to family elsewhere, and then retire back to the country that they've come from often. And that means they, they'll end up paying more in tax than they'll receive in benefits because the older we get, the more likely we are to rely on the health service or pensions and we become more expensive to the state. So even if you were just thinking in terms of pure economics, immigration is generally good. We, we have skills shortages in a whole bunch of areas. Uh, a lot of the narrative is, oh, you know, all these immigrants, they're, they're, they're clogging up the NHS. That's why we have so long waiting lists. Well, actually, it's the reverse. Our NHS is absolutely dependent on immigrant doctors and nurses and other medical staff. They definitely have more of a positive impact than a negative one. Look at our education system. Uh, according to the UK universities, it's over £37 billion a year is coming into the country through international students. And, and, and it's because of that money that many educational establishments like universities are able to carry on offering reasonably priced education to home students and, and and that's not even to mention culture you know look at our restaurant trade look at our music think about Dua Lipa I mean you know she's a British resident and yet she has contributed to our beautiful rich tapestry of, of pop uh, same with Rita Ora she she came and her family came from Kosovo so or just take football you know I'm, I'm a Liverpool fan where would Liverpool be without Mo Salah you know or where would Man City be with Eric Harris so th this negative view of immigration is so ideologically driven it's not driven by evidence and I think we really need to push back on it and because we're negative about immigration in general, we become negative about asylum and immigration and the people that need to come here. Yeah, let me ask you about that. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but just that specific is um, the, the way that immigration is perceived here in the UK, does it necessarily translate into a negative uh, perception of those who are coming in as refugees? I think it does. You know, when I post regularly on on Twitter, I'm kind of addicted to it and LinkedIn, and I know you do too. And and normally, when I post post a positive thing about immigration in general or asylum, um, those are the negative comments that come up. And you know, we're full; we can't possibly take anybody else. Uh, and so that that kind of scarcity mindset then blinds people to actually engage humanely uh, with uh, asylum, asylum, and and refugees. And, you know, the, the small boats, this is one of the top five priorities for our prime minister at the moment. Top five, you know. Uh, so of all the things that need fixing in our nation, this is in there. And it was 44,000 people last year, which is 6% of total migration to the UK. But that's the focus. So there's there's something gone wrong with our mindset. It's 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 been shaped by this fear mindset. And, and I think some groups are deliberately um, stoking this. As, as a way to kind of regain power. And, and this kind of nationalistic populism is not good for anybody. It's not good for our position in the world. You talk to, you know, Europeans after Brexit, they, they just think, well, what is, what's going on with you guys? Why, why are you trying to cut yourself off from everybody else? It's not good for business. It's not good for community cohesion. So th there's all sorts of challenges. And, you know, 
knowing that wider context for me means when I'm trying to advocate on behalf of refugees and asylum seekers, um, I realize I've got to, you know, I'm, I'm almost pushing water uphill for some people. Uh, and for me, that's why things like the Homes for Ukraine program was such a game changer because people open their homes to refugees and in unprecedented numbers. For most people that step forward, they'd never done anything with refugees before. They'd never given to a refugee charity. They'd never read a book about refugees. They'd never visited a refugee camp. But the first thing they did was to open their homes to strangers for six months. I mean, that's incredible. Most people had never hosted a British stranger in their home for that long. But but they were, and a bridge of empathy was built by the wall-to-wall coverage of the Ukraine war. And then we gave people a way to respond personally very quickly. You know, it wasn't like six months into the war. It was weeks into the war. We we made it possible for people to do something. And while it was in the media and while people were saying, oh, my goodness, I've got to do something, we captured that moment and people started a journey. And I've spoken to hundreds and hundreds of hosts and all of them tell me I, I had no idea that our immigration system was as broken as it was. Uh, I had no idea how difficult it is for people to get benefits in the country. I had no idea how difficult it is for people to get housing. And so this this coming close to people and seeing them not as a statistic or a problem, but as another human being in need, that changes the way that people respond. And it's been beautiful, you know, absolutely beautiful. I met one lady, she said, hosting a refugee has absolutely changed my life. You know, I, I was, I'd reached a stage in my life where I'd kind of accomplished all my professional goals, I had a successful business, but helping refugees has just helped me see there's so much more out there. And now I'm doing everything differently. You know, I've changed my career. It's fantastic. I saw the same happen to a, a very wealthy man in the States, Ed Shapiro, the head of the Shapiro Foundation. I don't know if you've you've interviewed him. He'd be a great guest for your show. Um, and it, again, it was through spon- community sponsorship that he changed his entire course of his life. Um, I mean, he's a significantly um, influential person. He's on the board of United Airlines, but it was community sponsorship that changed the way that he directed his entire life. So I, I'm just such a fan of this making those personal connections. I call it the power of proximity. Once you begin to engage with people as people, suddenly the politics, the rhetoric is set aside and you've got a really huge opportunity for social change. I was going to ask you, it's fascinating. Uh, I was going to ask you whether there's actually a misalignment or a gap between the sort of um, the reality you described in terms of the narrative, the negative narrative in terms of refugee perception and then folks generously open up opening up their homes and welcoming in strangers who are refugees i was going to ask you whether there's a gap there in those two things but what you're telling me makes me wonder and makes me curious about whether in actual fact there's a there's a journey or a transition or a, or or a changing of attitudes uh between perhaps a little bit more of a, a hard set um negative narrative and actually these individuals now becoming a little bit warmer to the idea uh, of hosting individuals and maybe whether the pendulum is moving in the right direction. I think there's huge potential for it to go in the right direction. My, my family are huge fans of the TV show, uh, The Great British Bake Off. It's a, a baking competition if people the listening haven't heard of it before. Um, and, and someone can make this most amazing cake on their, on their table, but it, it doesn't count until you've delivered it to the judge's table. And if you drop the cake 
at the last minute, all that hard work is lost. And that's been my conversation with the government in that the Homes to Ukraine scheme started so well. You know, unbelievable um, agility from government. That's not something you often hear, is it? So, for example, you know, anyone that's tried to apply for a visa to the UK will know how complicated and long that can take. Um, and we had hosts on the phone to their MP saying, you know, I've been waiting a week for my visa. This is too slow. And through that pester power of ordinary citizens, it, it got down to 48 hours. You could apply for a Ukrainian visa to the UK and you'd get it in 48 hours. It was incredible. Um, and, you know, local authorities were mobilized. They did home checks to make sure it was safe for you to come there. Unbelievable scale of change. It was absolutely brilliant. But the big challenge is... Will it end well? And for me, this is all about housing. You're probably familiar from some of your other guests that there is, there is a housing shortage in the UK. I do believe there's lots of space for people to come and live here, but there is a housing shortage. And there are all sorts of economic and you know nefarious reasons why there is a housing shortage. Um, and so helping people transition out of hosting, which is so good for everybody, into independent living, which is the right next step. If we don't manage that well, then people won't be up for doing it again. And so we've got to we've got to deliver this next phase well. The, the other part, I mean, they're, they're kind of connected. So at, at Sanctuary, we like alliterations. So uh, we, we talk about worthwhile housing. That's a really important element, and it needs to exist. And if it doesn't, we're going to be in trouble. Um, and the other one is work helping refugees getting to meaningful work um, because then you know no one was looking for housing for the uh, Hong Kong contingent they all managed to relatively quickly get into high paid worthwhile work but for Ukrainians it's been more difficult a lot of their uh, English is needing development or their skills don't translate across or some companies are unwilling to uh, to employ people on a short-term visa it's a three-year visa so um, if we help people get into worthwhile work, then they can sort out their worthwhile housing. Um, but if you don't know where you're going to live, then it's hard to work out where you're going to work. So that's kind of a, possibly a virtuous circle or a vicious circle, depending on how it goes. So I do think there's a huge opportunity for this to be a really positive um, long-term social change in our country now that we've proved what's possible. But right at the beginning of the, the scheme, there, there was quite a lot of negativity, sometimes even from the refugee sector. Some groups decided this whole thing was wrong. We shouldn't be doing anything for Ukraine that was different for other groups. And and they said, some people would say, oh, it's racist. You know, you're willing to help blonde haired, blue eyed Ukrainians, but you wouldn't do the same for people from Afghanistan. And I'm definitely a glass half full type of person. And I think if the government wants to do something, we can help the government to do something positive. We can help the population to do something positive. Let's do that next best step. You know, let, let's start there. Um, and and I, I think for me as a foster carer, I could understand some of the psychology that led to people being willing to help Ukrainians in a way that they haven't ever been given the opportunity to help other groups. So we became foster carers when our kids, our birth kids were six, five and four. And um, if you'd have told me that I had to take a teenager, that would be my first foster placement. I'd have been really scared because I've never looked after a teenager. I mean, I've been a teenager, but I've never looked after a teenager. But babies, we'd had loads of experience, like three babies in three years. So we thought, OK, we'll start with babies. And, you know, if that works out, then maybe we can graduate to look after teenagers. 
17 years later, we're looking after teenagers. You know, it, it was a journey we need to take. And I think for a lot of the public being asked to house women and children from Ukraine, uh, a country where, you know, the kids watch Frozen like our kids, they go to Nando's, like that, that cultural gap felt doable. And it was women and kids that felt doable. And, and again, when we polled them, we polled thousands of hosts, most people, you know, eight to nine months into the journey were saying, this has been great. We would do it again for other people, but it would have been too scary for them to start with someone that was very culturally distant from them. So I, I just say, great, well, let's, let's cheer them on. Let's help them make that next step. And then keep enlarging their imagination and their empathy by giving them other opportunities. Hmm. Because certainly the um, the nature of the war in Ukraine is is different for geopolitical reasons than what you might have in other hotspots, other crisis spots. So I understand how that captures the headlines in a different way yeah. than than what you might have if you're looking at Yemen or Sudan or elsewhere. That's um, right. I mean, you and I have a similar age, Alberto, and, and when we were growing up, all the films were apocalyptic about the end of the world coming thanks to a Russian invasion. And then one happens on our watch in our time. And I think it triggers all those kind of fears that we had as young people. And it's three hours away from London. Um, and it was, you know, there was no no question about the legality of it or whether there's two sides to the story. It was just an unprovoked attack. And so I think all those factors, again, added to that um, media engagement. And then that led to the public engagement. How does someone listening to this, now we, we are talking within a UK context, but this can apply, imagine this parallels elsewhere as well. How can someone listening to this who is keen to ensure that the progress that's been made thus far in terms of the attitude shifting and the hospitality extended uh, doesn't just stop once the war in Ukraine stops, but actually that you're able to uh, to build on what has happened, which is, a, I think, a positive development, build on it and ensure that irrespective of what the the how things unfold in Ukraine, that actually uh, as a UK, we're able to uh, to keep up the, the good work, as it were, and, 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 and keep those arms uh, wide open to to welcome individuals who are in need. I think there's a whole range of people that any there's a whole range of things that anyone can do to help. Um, and the first, I think, starts with your voice. And I don't just mean your voice on social media or your vote or, you know, whether you're a huge influencer or not. But, you know, I, I sometimes listen to conversations in the coffee shop or around the water cooler, and you'll hear those derogatory marks remain about, you know, immigration or refugees or asylum seekers. And I think, we need to just speak up there. You know, let's change that bigger narrative. And one way I think we do that is I've been challenging people to stop talking about refugees and asylum seekers and start listening to them instead. Um, so much of the conversation is problematizing asylum. It's dehumanizing, you know, we're a flood of migrants or we're being overrun by um, asylum seekers. Uh, actually, each of those uh, stories represents a person and so we, we've been trying to do that in a, in a whole range of ways you know giving people opportunity to connect so we worked with a 
a big company sales force at the beginning of the crisis. Um, a lot of the women that were coming to the UK uh, were seriously, you know, significant business women, lots of, you know, skills and experience. Um, but suddenly they were here and they were solo parenting their children because their partners were left behind or their elderly parents were left behind. Um, and because of their English and this is a new world to them, they had no connection. So um, Salesforce and Sanctuary, we put on an event where um, people can come and get a little bit of CV coaching, uh, just maybe some network development. And that one-on-one -on -one connection was so good, definitely for the Ukrainians. They've invited to a lovely kind of corporate headquarters in central London with the best views over, you know, look down on the Gherkin. This place is so amazing. Um, but the, the Salesforce staff said they just felt so fulfilled that, you know, some of them were senior managers, some of them were relatively entry-level workers, but they realized they had something to offer. And it wasn't just putting money in a tin, it was actually some practical help. And because they met someone who was like a peer, you know, the same life story, the only difference was one was a refugee forced to flee and, and the other wasn't. That was the only difference really. And they had more in common than they had that separated them. So I think we can raise our voice by getting close enough to refugees so they become friends and fellow human beings rather than just a statistic and if, if that's difficult you know for a whole range of reasons the, the other way to do it is just to listen to people's stories so we've put on a, a literary festival this year here's a book called the ungrateful refugee by dean and Nieri. and actually refugees have an incredible story to tell and they've got beautiful writing skills and so we're showcasing some of the best refugee authors in one place. By the time this goes out, um, it might be too late for people to get a ticket, but we'll make the event available online so you can listen. And again, hearing someone's story is it, just an act of hospitality and dignity, isn't it? To let someone tell you who they are and what they're about. I know when I was a young person, I was denied that. People would look at me and they say, you're a packy and you're no good to anybody. And I thought, I, I didn't even said anything yet. You don't know anything about me. So giving people the chance to tell you their story, either personally or through the written word or a film, is a way that we can become better educated and then we can influence conversations, whether that's at the water cooler, whether that's on social media, whether that's in the, the, the kind of realms of government. Knowing refugees and their stories is a really powerful way we can do that. I think a second way would be to think about your company and the opportunities that your company or your organisation has, um, not just to help or support refugees but to work alongside them um, and so we saw that with salesforce i'm seeing that with the prep foundation they've got some really interesting ideas they've uh, the prep manger group have uh, given 300 ukrainians a job and you know that's great it's about restoring dignity and getting people into the workforce and helping their language and their integration uh, but we're looking at what we can do with apprenticeships too, because a lot of big companies are paying a lot of money into the government's apprenticeship levy and a lot of companies aren't using it well. And so we're looking to see, can we help rebuild Ukraine by investing in Ukrainians that are here and upskilling them so they've got the mindset and the skill set that when Ukraine needs rebuilding today, we just saw about a huge dam being broken and, you know, thousands of litres and thousands of hectares of land just being destroyed. Um, there's a whole bunch of rebuilding that needs to be done. It's not just physical, it's infrastructure. What about the, um, the social welfare systems? Currently, Ukraine uses orphanages to kind of look after children with disabilities. Well, let's imagine another future 
where Ukraine's whole systems are made better because of diaspora refugees being skilled up when they're in different contexts and bringing those home. So maybe there are organizations that want to be part of that future building as well. What's the, uh, what's the website address where, where, where folks might, uh, who are interested in finding out more can find out more? sanctuaryfoundation.org.uk and we'd love to hear from you i'm very active on twitter and linkedin so people can find me there and you got an idea we're, we're a pretty small and agile charity we see ourselves as a catalyst helping things happen that wouldn't have happened otherwise but we're trying to be tiny uh, so that we're really cost efficient and impactful now before you run off with your busy day improving the world around us what's that key takeaway you'd love to share with the audience today so my big thing is around the power of proximity that we need to get close enough to people that we're trying to help or serve or encourage and not do things at a distance because that that makes sure that you are actually responsive to what's needed too many times charitable work is about throwing money at an issue from a distance or downloading a you know a solution without thinking about the context uh, we, we have a phrase that a friend of mine taught me in in sanctuary and it's nothing about us without us so you don't want to be designing a program that doesn't include the people that you're trying to serve they need to have a voice they need to be part of the design they need to be part of the implementation um, so you don't do things to people but you do things with people i think that that's really powerful we've seen it from a hosting scheme perspective, we've seen it from a fostering perspective that, that we can collaborate together by having proximity. Proximity it is. So I like that. Nothing about us without us. Chris, thank you so much for joining us back on the Do One Better podcast today. It's been an absolute pleasure hosting you on the show again. I'm looking forward to our, to our next encounter already. And good luck with the work that you're doing. Really great stuff. So it's been a pleasure. Thanks, Alberto. Great work. Always a pleasure to listen to you and to speak with you. Perfect. And that's a wrap. Thanks very much for tuning in. As always, you've been listening to a great chat with Krish Kandia, founder and director of the Sanctuary Foundation. For information about this conversation and more than 200 other case studies and interviews with remarkable leaders in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship, just visit our website at liji.org. That's L-I-D-J-I.org. Please click that subscribe button and follow us if you're not doing so already. And do leave us a rating and a review. It helps others to find this show as well. Thoroughly enjoy producing today's show for you, and I'll catch you this coming Monday.